This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. We're going to be talking right now about the truth regarding Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, verse 6, we read, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus Christ, before he was born and introduced into humanity, was God. After he was born and sat in a manger and raised by Mary and Joseph and walked the face of the earth, he was God. Yet he did not cling tenaciously to his entitlements and privileges as God's equal. So when asked about who Christ is, my response is unequivocally, God. To the majority, Jesus Christ is a towering religious figure, but they refuse to recognize and or acknowledge the profound nature of his being. He was just a smart guy with guts, intelligent. He knew how to organize a crowd. He bucked a corrupt system and had some great ideas. It's we, the people, who inflated his legacy to deity status. Sure, indeed, he was a great man. We agree. But God? God in flesh? No. Today, our government is telling us there is no God. They'll deny this, but however, holding to the ideologies that they embrace, they don't believe there is a God. We're all but just mere men. So says the majority. No, we, the minority, wholeheartedly disagree. We know who Jesus Christ is. And yet there are those who stand up and say, well, prove it. Okay, prove it and we'll believe. I will tell you right now that no, you won't believe. If somebody is sent to speak to you from the dead, you will not be persuaded. No, you won't. Oh, yeah, we'll try it and see. Okay, Jesus Christ died. That's a fact. He was crucified by Roman soldiers. It happened just exactly as the Bible predicted it would happen. And it is a historical fact. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, just as he said he would. Then he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And most of them were still living when Paul was writing his letters, but some had died. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to Paul, the one that was writing the book of Philippians. You need proof? What do you need? Oh, I know. I know. This, this is not good enough, right? You have to see it. You, you have to see it. No, I'm telling you, even if you saw it, you would not believe it. You would believe what Plato said long before you believe what the Bible has to say, even though there are very few documents that support Plato's opinions and his findings. One fellow said, I won't believe Jesus rose from the dead until I can touch the scars in his hands and his side. Jesus came in and the man touched his scars and he dropped to his knees and he said, Jesus, my Lord and my God. But you will believe what the world has formed as a result of some cosmic explosion. Why? Because the scientists have written this down on paper. Over a billion years have passed, and man was suddenly arriving on the shores as a fish. A story 
that literally has no foundational fact, no empirical data at all. You believe that man was formed after a fish somehow managed to climb to the shore, slither into the grass, develop the ability somehow to breathe above water, grew legs, arms, hair, walk upright, became more ape-like, and then eventually evolved into what we are now. Just consider the webbing between your fingers, you say, and look and see how similar they are to the fish in the sea. Grown men believe this, and this is how grown men reason things out. But to say, in the beginning, God created, you become a religious nut and holds to fantasy, a religious nut that holds to fantasy. This is hysterical. Yet, this is what the majority of the people believe. This is what governments throughout the world hold to. Christians, those called by God, we who have been born again, we hold to something else. Jesus Christ is the word mentioned in John's opening statements in the Gospel of John. He's the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the seed mentioned in Genesis 3.16. He is the Emmanuel, God with us. This Word that John spoke about became flesh and lived among us. He was the image of the invisible God. In a letter to the Hebrews, we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That's in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3. Now recognize this. We cannot ignore the facts regarding Jesus Christ, his birth, his origins, his past, and his present work in and through his assembly, the church. If we fail to see him for who he is, we will fail to recognize his work and his message. Jesus Christ was in very nature God, but we won't believe it. You might profess to be spiritual, religious, at peace within yourself, and so on, but you will not believe the gospel or the word of God. Well... Jesus Christ is equal with God in every sense and aspect. Jesus Christ is God. You may admit that Jesus was divine in the sense that all people are divine. We all have this spark of divinity within us. You may call him the Son of God in the sense that we're all children of God, or that Christ is somehow unified with God, unified in purpose and desire. Well, neither of these teachings are accurate, though they sound palatable and wise. When a Christian speaks of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not speaking about any such person as mentioned earlier. We're speaking about the eternal Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking about God himself and all that God is. Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead, and as such, is fully equal with God the Father. Jesus mentioned this, and the Jews wanted to kill him because he said it. They still do. The Marxists want to eliminate any idea of this. They even want to go as far as eliminating the entire idea of God. The Greeks, well, they found this to be nothing but foolishness. The world loves to discuss these things. But to us who believe, to the Christian, Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. What he said is true. What he promised, he will do.
all the attributes that we assign to God, we assign the same to Jesus Christ. To sum this up, we can say that everything God Almighty is, so is Jesus Christ. When Christ told the Jewish religious leaders before Abraham was, I am, he was telling them quite plainly as a man standing in front of them with the beard wrapped in a robe with all the physical attributes of a man that he himself was God. And for saying this, the Jews picked up stones in order to kill him. And from that moment on, they set about to see him hang on a cross. But let's take this a step further. Without a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is, you'll never be able to understand who God is and what God is all about. If you know Christ, you know the Father. If you do not know Christ, you do not acknowledge him, you do not reverence him as God, you will not know God. You will know an image of God or an idea of God or what some people say about God. Now we're making some powerful claims here and we need to understand how serious these things truly are. We're talking about the eternal destiny of people. If Jesus was God on earth, what does that mean to you? When Jesus spoke, he spoke the words of God. What does that mean to you? Well, it doesn't matter because I don't believe. Well, I suppose your unbelief makes everything that we're saying, everything that Christians hold to, because you don't believe it, it's all untrue. That's a foolish position to take. There are people who refuse to believe in Jesus. They refuse to believe that he was the full representation of God in all of his glory. And some have said that Christ, for some reason, renounced his glory. How could that be? Where do they find that in Scripture? No. Christ is fully God, always has been and always will be. But let's go a step farther with this. He's also fully man. To the Jewish mind, God alone is the possessor of glory. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, merciful, faithful, holy, just, kind, loving, patient, and forgiving, and so on. To them, God is one, not three in one. When the Jewish man would mention these attributes, he was said to be attributing to God the glory do his name. The glory of God consists in his intrinsic worth, which is immeasurable and indescribable. We can only use words in an effort to explain this, but the words are quite limiting. God's glory goes beyond anything that we can imagine. Now here in the hills of Kentucky, where I live, we see men and women who contribute a great deal of time to their families and their communities. We also see men and women who offer very little to society, but are content, are content to take anything and everything they can get. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they do whatever they can. We say that some people are worth their weight in gold, while others have no worth at all. We're referring to their character when we talk about this. What's inside of them? We judge this by what we see and what we know to be true. We see what's inside by how they act outside. Oh, now you're judging, right? No. No, this is called discernment. If a guy robs a bank, he's known as a robber. Am I correct? We see what's inside God by what we see outside in Christ. Look at the creation and consider the beauty of it all. What a creative mind our God has. Look at all of nature and see what all has been provided for us to see and enjoy. We see that God provides for us all things richly to enjoy. God is committed to the well-being of mankind. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He has provided us with good things. But we, you and I, we can see the wickedness of man, 
and we can see that they're allowed to continue, it seems, without any, any judgment coming down on them. Thus we can say that God is long-suffering and patient. He puts up with the nonsensical ideas of men, and he allows them to breathe the air that he has created, and drink the water that he has provided. Is that grace and kindness and mercy? To me it is. It's unmerited favor. We can conclude then that God is gracious above all that we know. This indeed gives glory to God, and we lift up his name in doing so. When we see Jesus, we see his worth, his glory, the intrinsic nature of God in man. We see the character of holiness and justice. We see the very character of God. If we see Jesus, if you know him, and you study him, you're seeing the Father. You're studying about God. You're seeing God. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. Again, I would mention how privileged it must have been for those shepherds who came to see Jesus lying in a manger, being the first to ever look into the very eyes of God himself. For me, this is a tremendous revelation. It bows my knees as nothing else can or will. I bury my face in my hands, shamed by my lack of understanding, my lack of reverence, and my lack of personal holiness. Who can dare to even attempt to stand before such glory and majesty? But there's more. Do you recall when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, leaving the Israelites in the valley? It was when he went up and received the Ten Commandments. There he met with God. When he came down, his face glowed to such an extent that he had to cover himself. There is a greater glory that I've never encountered. The glory is called the Shekinah glory of God. It is the shining forth of the glory of God in a light so brilliant that it's unapproachable. The glory of God was shining so bright the night the angels announced the birth of Christ that it brought fear to the hearts of the shepherd. This glory blinded the angry, cruel man the Christians knew as Saul as he marched down towards Damascus he was struck by the brilliant flash of light, and he fell to the ground, and he cried out, Lord. Christ did not renounce the glory he possessed, as some say. No, his glory was cloaked about by the skin of a man, a man that we know as Jesus. The divine nature, the character of God, dwelt on earth. He was fully revealed when he returned to heaven and took his rightful place with God the Father. When we see him there, then we'll know. My friends, if you have a love for Jesus Christ, this is something given to you, a blessing not all men have. The idea of Christ's glory should stimulate you to cry songs of praise. Even more, when you realize that God is forming that same character that was in Christ within you, it is God who is at work within you. It's Him. And He's working in order to see that you will to work for his good pleasure. Paul writes and says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Stop and think of this. God lives within you if you are born again by the Spirit of God. He indwells you by his Spirit. We're able to see God's glory, his character, and all of his attributes in the person and the work of Christ. We have a record of it. We can read it. We can study it and know it. As we see it and we live in Christ, 
we are changed into the same likeness of character by the presence of God within us. And what is more amazing is that he lives and dwells within us. That is amazing. A song is written that says, Stand amazed, ye heavens, at this. Sing with joy, both earth and sky. Humble to the dust he is, and in a manger lies. We sing this wondrous story. And it goes even farther. One day, you and I will stand in heaven. And we'll see the glory of God for ourselves. We'll know it. We'll see it. Now we see through a glass dimly. But then we will know even as we are known. God demands absolute holiness and sinless perfection. I can never meet such demands. I can't. But Christ did. And now I can stand complete in Christ, in his perfection. On Christ alone I take my stand. He is my perfection. He's washed me of my sin and he's declared me righteous. And he will tell me, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. And I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Have I been faithful? No. No, I have not. I failed miserably. This is not said in hyperbole. It's a fact. I can't raise my head. I feel worse than Peter who told Jesus, Depart from me, for I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man, Lord. I'm totally unworthy. Through the work of Christ, the grace of God calls me and you to perfection. I know nothing about perfection, but this will be my experience in heaven. Our perfection today is a person. Our perfection is Jesus Christ. There in heaven, those who know and those who obey and love Jesus Christ will be free from the presence and the effect of sin. All of our tears will be wiped away and there'll be no sorrow in God's tomorrow. We'll be surrounded by the glory of God for all of eternity. And there'll be no ending to our rejoicing. Our body, soul, and spirit will at last be free to be all that God has intended it to be. And we can say now, and we certainly will say then, glory to God in the highest. Amen. Thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.